I'm Mariah Kofsky, and this is Called, a show where we hear from those who have discovered and followed their calling. Hello, and welcome back to Called. Today's guest is Scott Barry Kaufman, who is a humanistic psychologist exploring the depths of human potential. He's taught courses on intelligence, creativity, and well-being at Columbia, NYU, the University of Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. Scott is interested in using his research to help all kinds of minds live a creative, fulfilling, and self-actualized life. He recently released his new book, Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. I learned about Scott three years ago from some friends who were taking his positive psychology course, and they raved to me about Scott and his work on creativity and intelligence, so I must have bookmarked that in my head because as I was thinking for as I was thinking of people to interview for the show, I was like, what about Scott Barry Kaufman? So I ended up reading his book, Ungifted, which explores the latest research in neuroscience and psychology that challenges conventional wisdom about what we've learned are childhood predictors of adult success, and he argues for a more holistic approach to measuring intelligence. And he also weaves in his own personal narrative of being diagnosed with a learning disability at a young age, which we talk about in this interview, and then being relegated to special education as a child. I deeply connected with Scott's story and feeling misunderstood or not being seen by teachers in the education system because they didn't think that you would succeed in the ways that you intrinsically felt motivated to and knew you were capable of, but also being conspicuous and visible because you were singled out for not being smart enough or not being gifted. I'm As I'm reading this book, I'm like, this. it feels like someone is narrating my life at points, and lo and behold, I discovered that Scott went to my high school and we are, we're from the same neighborhood. So that was pretty trippy. In this book, Scott talks about being administered an IQ test at age 11, which told him he had a below average IQ that then followed him throughout the majority of his K through 12 education and is a primary reason he was in remedial courses. And okay, my dog is like hiccuping in the background. It's very cute. He's asleep. I don't know if you can hear it. Okay. (laughs) So then when Scott gets to high school, he has to take the SAT and we all know this like exists for administrative and political financial purposes, not for educational ones at this point, right? Okay. And because he doesn't score well in the SATs, he's limited in which schools he can attend and he really wants to attend Carnegie Mellon, but because he doesn't have the SAT scores to get into their College of Arts and Sciences, I think it is, he is not accepted to that school, but he applies through the opera program and gets in through the opera program. And he also shares how he felt ashamed of having a learning disability for most of his life and that an IQ test revealed he had a low IQ and he didn't share these things. I don't think he shared either thing with anyone until he published this book. Even when he was at Yale, he didn't tell his professors or peers because he feared he would expose himself as a fraud, as someone who isn't worthy of being there, and also potentially compromise his 
colleagues' ability to see him as an objective researcher studying intelligence. When I read Scott's story, the shame that I felt about my intelligence, the school that I went to, how I got into that school, my perception of my intelligence began to dissipate because I felt connected to another person who understood and lived through something very similar to what I have. And as Brene Brown says, shame is the fear that we are inherently unworthy of connection, whereas guilt is the fear that we've done something that makes us unworthy of connection, or I think that's a differentiation. And I felt, I have felt major, major shame about what I just listed. So I decided that in an effort to live a more transparent, intentional, honest life, go me, I am going to share my own story in this introduction. Even before I've recorded this introduction, I've had a shame hangover brought about by the idea of this interview and this episode being accessible to anyone besides me and my dog. And it's made me think a lot about how we tell our stories because I have this impulse to get it perfect and manipulate it so that I can't be called out for being a victim of my own story or whatever it is that I tell the story in a way that pleases other people. And I'm just going to allow for it to be imperfect and I'm sure it's not processed in the same way that it will be five years from now. Even after my interview with Scott, these perfectionist tendencies came up and I was like cringing away from my own existence and repulsed by my own voice because I feared that I didn't share my story in a way that would allow me to be accurately understood by those who listened and that my intention for the show didn't carry through our interview because we didn't talk enough about purpose or whatever. And it, yeah, it's this is a messy process sometimes and it's made me think about how how do I tell this story when I know that the way I'm going to tell it will change and I know there are things I don't see now and I know I have blind spots. How do I tell this story of deep shame? It's not uncommon that we're asked to share our story, to be accepted into an institution, or to receive a job, or apply to a job, or a grant. And when we are sharing our story for these entities, we have to still adhere to genre conventions, and I think a lot of the time our stories don't do that, so we find ourselves editing and smoothing over edges and I don't know, I'll speak for myself, like, I definitely have to notice where I've done that and where I've manipulated the truth so that I'm accepted by someone or something else. And even when I'm not actively seeking that external validation, it still scares me that I might be misunderstood because I don't fully understand myself. Okay, so I don't know, that's, that's what I'm working with. I guess I can start by talking about my high school experience, which encompasses complexities and dualities, but I'll do my best to summarize. So I went to a public high school that was a well-funded school, it was a rigorous school, and it had many hardworking students, and I'm all for hard work when meaningfulness and purpose are centered or considered, but I didn't 
really ever feel like that was the case. There was not a value placed on real world learning and I felt the absence of that. So instead, there was a huge emphasis on college. The school emphasizes college preparation throughout all four years and I felt a lot of pressure to take advanced placement classes, which I believe is pretty common, the pressure one feels to do so, and get into the most selective college. This creates a competitive atmosphere. So it seemed like the purpose of doing well in high school was to get into a good college. And getting into a prestigious college was oftentimes something to be marketed. It was a way to brand oneself. For example, when someone was accepted into a highly selective school, they would often announce it on Facebook and proudly wear that school's apparel. The college admissions process at my school was also very secretive. People, even peers, even close friends, were in competition with one another and reticent to speak about where they applied and where they were accepted to or rejected from. So a lot of shame, a lot of secrecy. I should also make it clear that I don't think there's anything wrong with publicly celebrating a college acceptance. It's when that announcement stems from and perpetuates pernicious ideas of success and failure, failure where I believe it is something that should be looked at critically. I'll get into this in a bit, but I want to note that academic success did not come to me definitely not easily to me, debatably did not come to me, period, in high school or middle school. But I was intrinsically motivated to go to a challenging university that aligned with my personality, but I was also extrinsically motivated because I saw people around me who were getting into good schools receive praise and external validation from other students and teachers, and I wanted that recognition. Um... I decided that I would apply to Penn early decision because I wanted to study positive psychology and I wrote my supplemental Penn essay on how I wanted to work at Penn's positive psychology lab to study grit with Angela Duckworth and further integrate grit into how we define and measure intelligence, which as you will hear is very similar to what Scott wrote his college essay about. And even though I'm still fascinated by grit and how early childhood experiences predict achievement, his commitment to this work was unwavering, and Angela Duckworth is one of his colleagues. But anyway, in high school, I, my, I, I was taking mostly AP and honors courses, and my grades were okay, but I really, I struggled immensely to do well on standardized tests. I took the ACT and I took it a few times and I scored in the teens, I believe, on the math and science section. So I had pretty horrible test scores, which hindered my ability to be accepted into the schools that I wanted to attend. And I did not get into Penn. I believe I was accepted to two schools, but wasn't stoked about either of them. There was an in-state school I applied to as what they call a safety school, but I was waitlisted there and felt ashamed about that. I don't think I told anyone. 
After being rejected from every school I wanted to go to, I heavily consider taking a gap year and apply to an experiential education program where I would backpack through Bolivia and Peru in the Andes and Amazon. And I wish I had planned for a gap, an entire gap year more diligently, but ultimately this would just be for a semester and I'm so incredibly grateful for this experience. I didn't feel ready to leave South America. I was, I had met a midwife that I just wanted to stay, I wanted to stay there and work and learn more about midwifery and anyway, I did not feel ready to leave. I wanted to stay, but I came home, which is a story for another time, and decided that I would attend one of the two universities I was accepted to, which was the University of Vermont, and I figured this this maybe could work out because I had just spent a semester backpacking through the Andes, so maybe I could continue fostering my relationship with the mountains, and maybe I could become a stoner and learn how to ski. Um, I didn't, I don't think I did. I actually, yeah, didn't do either of those things. I did drink maple syrup out of a mug, though, alone. I didn't feel like it was the best cultural fit for me, and this is just my experience, but I wasn't being challenged in the ways that I wanted. I felt like I was becoming stagnant, and especially because I was out of state and paying a lot of money going into debt to be there, I wasn't certain if the investment was worth it, so I made the executive decision to apply to transfer. While I was at UVM, though, I now had a morsel of confidence, and I also think I developed better study habits. That was something I struggled with throughout all of school and not knowing how to how to not procrastinate, which is really about avoiding the emotions associated with the work I didn't want to do, feeling inadequate, feeling unworthy. It caused me to procrastinate a lot, and I had overcome some of that when I was at UVM by the time I got there, and I got all A's that semester, so now I was applying to transfer, but I had decided a little bit later into the semester, so I'd missed some deadlines. And the two schools that I had originally applied to transfer to while I was at UVM were small schools that didn't really have a transfer class, and I didn't get into either of them. And then I was like, what if I, what if I applied to Penn again? I think the idea of being in the city I grew up in sounded more appealing because I hadn't been there for a whole year and I felt alone at UVM, so I was open to going back to Philadelphia. And I, I yeah, I'd missed the transfer deadline though, because I decided this pretty late into the process. But I knew someone at Penn who was in this program called a domestic guest student program, which is basically where you go to the school for a semester or a year and you're a visiting student, so you're earning credits, but you're not matriculating at the school, like you're not going to get a degree. And I applied to this program without telling anyone, I don't think, maybe I told a few close trusted friends, but the person that I knew in this program didn't want anyone to know that they were a domestic guest student because they were trying to transfer in as a matriculating student, and so I began to feel some shame. I mean, maybe it wasn't just because of them either, like 
I, I, I don't really remember what I felt, but I think it's likely that I felt shame around doing this program and still not knowing where I was going to school and where I was matriculating. I also didn't want people at Penn to know that I wasn't matriculating because I wanted them to want to be friends with me. I wanted them to think that I was a worthy person of investing in, investing that sounds so transactional, but getting to know and putting their time and energy into and not someone who is potentially going to be away from them the following year. So I get accepted to this program and I attend Penn that year. And when I got there, I was very grateful to be there and motivated to learn and have professors that were intellectually curious and classes that were engaging. And I got all A's that semester, which is the first time I'd ever, well, I guess besides UVM, maybe the second time I this was the first time I had earned straight A's for an entire year, which felt like a big accomplishment. Because throughout middle and high school, it was a struggle for me to do well in school. I guess I could do well, like I could do okay, but it was hard for me to do great. I I don't think I ever did great. It was it was a struggle to do well okay in school. I'd estimate that I earned no more than five A's throughout all of high school. I ended almost every year with B's and C's, so I did not think I would get into Penn when I applied, but I think I wanted to honor my determination and dream to work with Angela Duckworth in the positive psychology lab, and I don't believe there was anywhere else I really wanted to apply early decision. And I had thought, I I believed, and I guess I'm still working, you know, years of a belief being molded into you, it's hard to extract it, but I believed that I was inherently stupid and that there was just something wrong with me that could never be overcome because it was inherent to my identity, my genetics, whatever. Um, One of the first memories I have of this is in seventh grade, I was working with a math tutor and no matter what we did, I had difficulty understanding and remembering basic mathematical concepts like multiplication, division, and fractions. Could not do fractions. I could not explain math processes or show my work when asked to complete a math problem, even if I understood the problem theoretically, could not translate it to paper. And I would still get like D's and C's on tests, even if I did the work every day and practice every day, even if I did everything that I had to do. And then What else? Um, Trouble with spelling, grammar, mispronouncing words, word retrieval, confusing words that sound alike, repeating words when writing, misreading questions on tests was a huge huge one. Um, In eighth grade, our teachers were responsible for giving us a recommendation in order to take honors classes the following year and I wanted to take honors classes. I've always been drawn to creative expression and critical thinking and wanting to be a better writer and speaker, and I did not receive one honors recommendation, even though I had this burning intrinsic motivation to challenge myself and learn in the ways that would be considerate of how I learn. Um, but all my friends received honors recommendations and it seemed like most of my peers did. So I felt 
behind I, again this idea something was wrong with me being reinforced and there was a disconnect between how I saw my potential or how I saw what I could be capable of and what adults were telling me I could be capable of and I didn't know whether to accept their truth or my own truth and I definitely didn't know if both could be true but ultimately I over <laughs> I'm talking about intelligence I don't even overrid overrided you know overrid override overrided oh man it's late I took honors classes anyway because I oh I'm just gonna look this up what is it overrided overrode oh shit I wasn't even thinking of that one overrode their recommendations when I was in middle school and high school it was difficult if not impossible for me to identify why I struggled to succeed academically because my lack of success was usually attributed to me being lazy or careless, not working hard enough, not working smart enough, me being anxious, and those things were true, but they weren't focusing on the root of what was going on. It was like, okay, and why? Why is this happening? I don't think I was ever of grave concern to my teachers. Like, I don't think they were ever that worried about me failing. And I also hypothesized that they saw I had some level of interpersonal intelligence and I could express myself clearly through in-class discussions. So the work I was handing in must not be an accurate representation of my best. But I did meet with some teachers over the years and they questioned if I was being careless and inattentive, but we would usually chalk it up to anxiety because I did feel anxious when working. I felt incapable and, in, and incompetent. So our solution was to meet with them more often and work more diligently. And I got tutors or continued working with tutors and math and science courses. Um, but this predicament was especially bad in math a parent had to be brought in because I was going to fail my math class even though I was working with a tutor going in for office hours I could not I, I could not get above a D on almost any test as I'm realizing now the situation did become pretty severe in the realm of math but it was still chalked up to ineffective study habits and anxiety nothing beyond that so I got a D minus in math my senior year, not, not the D we wanted, and I almost failed out. Um, this led to a deep sense of learned helplessness, which was exacerbated in other areas of my life in early adult and childhood, but that's probably for another time. So while I was at Penn, I still experienced these difficulties, but my coursework at Penn was not as difficult as it was in high school. Like, it was much more manageable, and I also had cultivated some more confidence about my self-worth and capability, so I was not avoiding the work as strongly, avoiding the work as in avoiding the emotions associated with the work and the procrastination that comes from that, so I was able to sit with those emotions better, but I still would get comments from professors like, this sentence makes absolutely no sense. You said the word with four times in the sentence. Like, did you even proofread this? And I'd be like, yes, like I, I, I did. Like I, yes. And it was very confusing to me because I wouldn't see these things and I don't see these things often when I'm writing. 
Um, but it was, it was much more manageable. I think a lot of the work at Penn, even though I was in writing courses and whatever, like it was interpersonal skills and critical thinking through dialogue, not always through writing. So there was more of a balance. I was enjoying my classes at Penn. I had met some good friends. And at this point, I had already been to South America. I'd already gone to UVM. I'm in a program at Penn that only lasts one year and I wanted stability at the time. So I decided I would apply to Penn as a matriculating transfer student. I would say that there is an overarching ethos at Penn that is widely out of alignment with my values and focuses on corporatism and transactional relationships and generational wealth. But I mean, every university has its flaws and at least, I don't know, Penn's is, Penn's is pretty ingrained in, into its foundation. But alas, I decided to apply as a transfer student and you know, I really thought I had this one in the bag. I didn't have to submit my high school grades, my te- standardized test scores, and I had two semesters of straight A's. But um, yeah, I got rejected from Penn. And I don't even think I applied to any other schools that year. So this is now my third time applying to college. And yeah, I got, I got rejected. It was difficult for me to comprehend how I could earn straight A's out of school, apply to that school as a matriculating student, and be rejected. So I attributed this rejection largely to some inherent flaw within myself that I couldn't see and everyone else could. Which plays on this fear that teachers and admissions officers knew more about me than I knew about myself. I now I was not enrolled in school. I didn't have any plans to be enrolled in school and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I ended up finding a job in Philadelphia and not telling anyone that I wasn't enrolled in Penn. Instead, I said I was taking a gap year to work and remained part of much of many of the communities that I had made at Penn, like on-campus school groups, and I also had friends there that I still cared about, but I felt so ashamed of this that I didn't tell anyone, and I lied, which I'm very ashamed of. So I went through this year living off, like, on the off-campus Penn housing, which isn't Penn affiliated, just off-campus, no one knowing that I wasn't a student taking a gap year, um, having to figure out what I'm going to do the next year. You know, do I apply to a pen again, to pen again and then get rejected again? Or do I apply to another school and then have this other big transition that might feel overwhelming and confusing and reorient myself while most of my peers are finishing their undergrad degree? This same year that I was working, I shared with my therapist that I believed there was something intrinsically wrong with me that made me stupider than other people around me and incapable of grasping or articulating concepts in the way that I should be able to. And I think she asked me to bring in my writing with the comments that I had saying that my work was careless and that I'm not taking enough time to read over my work. And anyway, this is how I found out that I had been living with a learning disability. I felt very isolated and disconnected that year because I was 
too ashamed to tell anyone that I didn't go to Penn, and I decided to apply to NYU the following to matriculate the following year. And Penn, through the through the school that I did the domestic guest student program through, which is a continuing education school at Penn, and they have a higher acceptance rate than the college. Well, it's in the College of Arts and Sciences. It's it's very strange. The reason you don't hear, or you probably don't know anyone who has gone through the school is because they don't offer any financial aid. And this is a school with a $15 billion endowment. So, uh, yes. I got into both Penn and NYU, but even with financial aid from NYU, which is notorious for not giving any aid, I they would have been the same price, so I decided to stay at Penn. Um, but I still felt a lot of shame for going to Penn through this program, paying much more money than I would have paid if I had gotten in through arts and sciences. And people at Penn talk about having imposter syndrome, but I was like, no, I am the imposter. It's not a syndrome. And I was very ashamed. I mean, I wanted the validation of a prestigious school because I have this unworthiness wound and I wanted to feel worthy of attending a prestigious school, even though I don't agree with the metrics the institution use the institution uses to measure one's success and worthiness of succeeding there. And I also felt that I was learning more at Penn than I had at the school I was at before and I mean I, I I was doing the best with the tools I had at the time I don't know I don't I feel like uh, I don't know how to say this without like making myself a victim of the story and um the high school that I went to also perpetuated ideas about prestige especially when it came to college prep and what school one goes to and in that that environment I picked up ideas about worthiness and academia that made it seem like going to Penn would lead me to future success and fulfillment and I take responsibility for those choices. I feared that if I told people my shame story they would say that I bought my way into Penn which by the way I can't afford like I went into a lot of debt I didn't like, I can't afford to be in that much debt, but, you know, that's that's an issue for a different episode. And, yeah, I feared that they would say I bought my way into Penn, that I was not worthy of being there, that I would go through all of this to be at an institution that doesn't even value me, that I don't value myself. And, of course, I had to believe these were true on some level, or I wouldn't care. I feared that jobs would... I, I mean, clearly jobs that I don't even align with anyway would not want to hire me. I, like, it's very true that I've gotten interviews for positions, again, that don't even align with me because if I'm going to work somewhere and they're only valuing me based on my, the school that I went to, then it's probably not the right place for me. But I've definitely gotten offered positions and been told that I was offered a position because I went to Penn and how that was a factor in their consideration. So I was afraid that this would delegitimize my degree. 
even though like I, I did the same courses, it's the same curriculum, there's virtu- there's no difference between going to the school that I went to or the program that I, I don't even know what to call it, like this continuing education school versus the College of, or College of Arts and Sciences. The only difference is that I had to take one more writing seminar, but besides that, totally the same. And I did well at Penn, like I graduated magna cum laude, which is, I don't really, I, I want to celebrate that because I think it speaks to my grit and it's also within an institution that has the aforementioned ethos and doesn't measure intelligence holistically all the time and also that I, I resent still in, in some ways. So I think that's the whole story. Thank you for listening to this long introduction. Oh my gosh, if you're if you're still here, um, I don't have any wishes for how this found you. I hope you're you feel a little less shame. I don't know. I guess I don't hope that. I hope you just feel whatever you feel. Feel whatever you feel. Did I already say it's four thirty in the morning? It's four thirty in the morning. Okay. Please enjoy this interview with Scott Barry Kaufman. Thank you so much, Scott, for coming on the show, and thank you for writing Ungifted. Scott, thank you so much. Or should I say Dr. Kaufman? What do you prefer? Oh, gosh. Call me Scott or SBK. Okay, I'll call you SBK. SBK, thank you for coming on calls. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, excited to talk to you too. I love I love the title of your show. Thank you. Well, my first question that I ask all my guests has the title of the show in it. It is, "What are you called to do?" Yeah, I think there's. I, I have multiple hats, so I think that one calling is helping uh, teachers and parents to realize the full potential of kids. And then another hat is trying to help adults live a fulfilled, meaningful, and self-actualized life. Mm. I know from reading your book, Ungifted, that when you were young, you were diagnosed with an auditory learning disability. Can you tell me about your learning disability and how it changed your relationship with school and your teachers and maybe how it influenced what you feel called to do? Yeah, well, I was really young. I was diagnosed with a central auditory processing disorder, which is uh, made it difficult for me to process information in real time. And really, I came across as slow and teachers thought I was a slow, a slow learner. It's actually a label. And yeah, when I was a kid, I was very confused about that. And how could I feel like I'm capable of greater intellectual challenges on the one hand, but on the other hand, I don't feel like I'm given many opportunities to display that potential. I mean, my early childhood experiences directly impacted my interest in this field and why I do what I do today. I remember as a kid really thinking through why are some people like in a gifted classroom why are a lot of my friends in the special ed classroom not gifted 
they seem gifted to me. <laughs> I was very confusing. Uh, and then, and I was bullied a lot and just always gravitate towards the person on the playground who looked like they were marginalized in some way and just felt a calling to, to make friends with them. Those were my people. And I didn't discover there was a field that I could study this till college, really. But I knew inside that I wanted to do what I'm doing today. And it, it's, it's pretty crazy, but I knew that this is what I wanted to do. It didn't have the full details, but now, now the details are more fleshed out. I can still think back and think it's really not that different than the vision I had in my head as maybe even an eight-year-old. Hmm. Yeah, I think your story epitomizes this idea that sometimes even more than we are invited to be who we are, we're told who we are, and transcending that can be lifelong work. We come from similar backgrounds, both in where we grew up, we went to the same high school, and I also resonate and empathize with your story. Were you in the new, the new Lower Marion building though? I was in the, I was in the new wow. Lower Marion building. And this is something that I have worked to process since being at Lower Marion and also since graduating. And I find it challenging to speak about because Lower Marion is, I mean, at least when I attended, it's a well-funded school and it's a prestigious school. But also during my time there, I felt pressured and psychologically disengaged because I didn't feel like meaningfulness and purpose purpose were nurtured. So I, I felt similar, similarly to you um, because I felt like, I don't know, unrelenting output was valued over intellectual curiosity and health. Mm, that's was a shame. Yeah, it, I mean, there are also, everything is a black and white, right? Like there are also ways that the school nurtured my creativity. Did you feel like that was similar to you or did you have a different experience? Yeah, I know there's a lot of pressure for all that. Yeah, in some way, I, I went through the uh, the back door um, of Ormarian greatness because I started off in special education and didn't have that pressure on me whatsoever. I had no expectations on me so I took I was in remedial I started talk about the Drake song start from the bottom to the, <laughs> to the top and I say that with all due humility of course <laughs> I don't know if psychologists are allowed to talk like rappers but I started off in all remedial classes no college expectation for me to and then fast forward I did I got a PhD from Yale university but there was a lot in between those two a lot of stuff going on and uh and i had to my situations i had to uh almost force laura marion to believe in me mm. I, I almost demanded it so i wanted i wanted it hard i wanted i wanted a lot of hard work and challenge and i just that's what i desperately was craving mm-hmm yeah, I, I know in Ungifted you talk about there was one. You read Ungifted? Yeah. Oh my, <laughs> I my research. I read all your books. I had to do my research. Oh, wow. But I'm also, so I impressed. love your work. So, I mean, it's it was a pleasure to read. 
I'm so impressed. I know there was one special, I think it was a special education teacher who saw you in the um, remedial classes and asked you why you were there because she saw the possibilities of who you could be and that you weren't being given the opportunity to live up to that. What does the ideal education system look like to you? What are people learning and how are they learning? It's a big, big lofty question. The education system is obviously a, uh, a big umbrella that, that incorporates private schools, public schools, independent schools. You have all sorts of different schools. Public education really is, all, is about standardization as much as possible. And I've argued that we need to have a more humanistic education that takes into account the whole child. And that doesn't just include their academic prowess, but in it, but offers them other forms of development that they need to become a whole person. And that does involve self-actualization. I think that the self-actualization is not a stated goal by the Department of Education. <laughs> <laughs> no. In any in any in any administration, not just this administration. I don't think it's ever been a goal, but I wonder if that was a goal. And and the the development of what are the unique strengths and potentialities that lie within a single human being that they can uniquely contribute to the world. I wonder what would happen if school was geared towards trying to focus and, and zoom in on that for each child and give them customized curriculum to help them move towards that because life is incredibly short. And when you're in school, K through 12, life doesn't seem short, but then it, ra it accelerates rapidly as soon as you graduate. And I think a lot of the time that's wasted in, especially in high school, on subjects and knowledge matter that is totally irrelevant to your life and your own uniqueness could be spent on that development earlier than having to wait. Usually people wait till after they graduate college even, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think self-actual, I, I can't even imagine. I think that's one of the hardest things for people I should talk from personal experience for me to wrap my head around like what would self-actualization even look like in a curriculum because I it seems that many schools especially public schools are far from that standard of learning or model of learning I know also at Ungifted you you wrote about going to the school psychologist's office and taking a placement test to see if you could graduate from fourth grade because you, or graduate to fourth grade because you had just repeated third grade and you were afraid that the psychologist would discover the truth of who you are, which is that you were a slow learner or like perhaps an abrasive way of saying that is this fear that you would be found out as someone who is stupid. And I relate to that fear very deeply being told that you can only be so much and you write about this reoccurring fear in your book 
having been administered IQ tests and then these fears that it will reveal who you are. I'm curious to know, like, have you transcended this fear? And if you did, when and how did you do so? It, it, what is the fear exactly? The fear of, of uh, being discovered as stupid? Well, I don't want to speak for you. So it, I guess like what I, from reading your book, it seemed that there was a, I, I should ask you, like, was that something you were afraid of? Were you afraid that these IQ tests would reveal something about your capability to be an intelligent person? I see. Um, so that was definitely a fear for many, many years. I also had this kind of like neurotic OCD fear that I, my brain offers me some limit on what I can possibly understand or do relevant to what I want to do. So it doesn't bother me if my brain has a limit to understanding four-dimensional calculus, but I'm saying I had a fear that, you know, I wanted to go to, if I wanted to go to college someday, am I just not smart enough to, like, this was, this was not an unfounded fear because when I was in high school, junior, senior year, I had a meeting with the school psychologist to see if I could be in gifted education my senior year. And he looked at my IQ score when I was age 11 and he said, I don't qualify. And I checked out a books on a book on human intelligence in the library. And it had a chart that said what you're capable of doing in your life based on your IQ score. And I looked at the IQ score of what he had just told me was my IQ, but we're talking, he, he was looking at my age 11 IQ apparently according to him intelligence doesn't change and that chart was like horrifying to me it said it, i found I, I found my 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 slot and it said highly unlikely to graduate high school and i was already senior in high school and i was just like screw that and i was just like i'm going to i'm going to like i'm 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 going to it actually fired me up because mm-hmm. i was determined to prove the textbook wrong <laughs> And then I wrote my own, I I did my own Cambridge Handbook of Intelligence someday with note where I don't have that chart. So isn't that great? Wow. What, What I find really interesting about your story is that you were motivated to continue pursuing the study of intelligence within a system that insinuated you weren't smart enough to study it. It's, there's so, there's irony on so many levels. I mean, I, I wrote a personal statement to Carnegie Mellon about why I wanted to major in psychology. Actually, I applied for their cognitive science program. And I got rejected, I'm assuming due to my low SAT scores. My, my essay was on why we need to redefine standard metrics of intelligence. So it's like, sorry, you're not smart enough to, to redefine intelligence. This is, this is kind of the message I was given. It's, it's, no, there's a lot of irony there was this label of disabled that you kept secret. When did you come out as someone who had been labeled disabled and why were you afraid to share your past with other people? Great question. I didn't come out as ungifted as I like to joke uh, until the book Ungifted came out. I was in the field of intelligence research after I got, uh, while I was getting my PhD, I was studying this and I kept it a secret that 
uh, my IQ wasn't astronomical because everyone assumed that it was not just because of my obvious brilliance, but because of, I was at Yale mm. and yeah. So if you're at Yale, they assume you're there, you're that you're intelligent enough to be at Yale. Uh, I felt like, I certainly felt like an imposter for, for uh, a certain period of time. I eventually got over that once I realized that smart people were really stupid. <laughs> yes. So yes, like, I got over that quickly, but I, I mean, I don't know what I was expecting. I was like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to keep up with all these uh, authentically high IQ people? And then I realized, God, they're dumb. But um, <laughs> that's, that's a tangent, but yeah, I, I, I don't know, just for a, a long period of time, I, Wait, wait, what was the, what was the question again? <laughs> um, the I, question I was, the, that's okay. I kept okay. it to myself. Yeah. I, yeah, you kept it to yourself, and then you wrote this book, and you're like, I wrote this book, Ungifted, by the way, my IQ's super low, but I'm at Yale, so what do we make of this? Yeah. How did your colleagues respond? In 2013, when the book, Ungifted, came out, I was, uh, this was post-PhD, um, they couldn't revoke my PhD because of my IQ score. <laughs> <laughs> funnily enough wouldn't that be funny if they're like oh you were actually a fake <laughs> you actually you weren't smart enough to do what you did <laughs> we're gonna revoke your phd uh, maybe that was a nightmare of mine but I, no one cared <laughs> to be honest i mean not that i know no one's said anything um I, I mean i have one colleague rex young who heard a talk i gave about my personal story and said i don't buy it like i you were just you're just mistested in wow. uh, when you're 11 it's, oh my gosh. you're not your IQ is obviously high so I want to invite you to come to New Mexico and I'm going to give you a proper IQ test as an adult and scan your brain and because um, he didn't he didn't buy it he wanted a scientifically experiment on me <laughs> so I I did all expense paid to New Mexico to get a battery of IQ testing and my brain scanned and everything. What what did it find? Dun, dun, dun. Um, I feel like I need to add some drama into this story. Well, there I have a very thick corpus callosum and a small prefrontal cortex, which means I somehow managed to maximize the beep. I won't curse on your podcast. Um, maximize the beep out of out, <laughs> out of my brain, <laughs> in, 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 <laughs> however I can. Um, by the way, Einstein had a very thick corpus callosum, but um, I'm not, you know, I'm no big deal. Totally no big comparing deal. myself to Einstein, but I sure just did. But yeah, they, and a thick corpus callosum allows me to to access my whole self. So your brain is a a self actualized brain. You've done the most that you can with your brain. It's it's. Well, I hope I still I'm still in process. I hope I'm not done. <laughs> I want to ask you about self actualization and transcend. I just finished your book, Transcend: The New Science of Self Actualization, and congrats. Well, do you want to hear what my IQ score was? Oh, oh my God, we didn't finish the story. Okay, yes, I want to hear what your IQ IQ score was. There's a there's a there's a twist ending. Okay, yes, tell me, tell me. So my overall IQ score was above average, um, but not in the gifted range, huh. but, but it's what it, what was masked 
was the fact that I'm totally suck at visual spatial mental rotation, which I always knew I sucked at. See, anyone who knows me knows, ask me, not to ask me for directions. But my verbal intelligence was highly gifted in the profoundly gifted, highly gifted range. Hmm. So that that just when you have something that's extremely low and extremely high score, it averages out to slightly above average. So when they looked at my IQ score at age 11 or whatever, they didn't look at that level of nuance. That makes sense. Yeah. I think we've been like tricked into believing that at a certain point, we're either smart or we're not. And no one thinks babies are stupid because they can't read or write and we expect them to learn. It's, do you think it's possible that your IQ changed over time because you saw potential in yourself and challenged yourself? And why do you think people view intelligence as fixed? Hmm. Well, obviously our intelligence changes and grows over time within ourselves. The question is relative to others. So IQ test scores are just normed relative to other people. So when you're 40, you're not, you're at, your score is not compared to your 11-year-old self. It's compared to other 40-year-olds. Um, people tend to view IQ as fixed. I don't think they understand, first of all, that, that fact that developmentally speaking, of course, we all increase our intelligence and learn and grow. There's very few, like I said, very few 40-year-olds who aren't, and I, although I've met some, <laughs> but there are very few that aren't any more intelligent at age 40 than they were at age 11. <laughs> it's all like I said IQ is calculated relative to others of similar age mm-hmm. yeah. but with that said there is this notion of intelligence is fixed people tend to think of talents as fixed as well I think maybe almost we want to believe that you're either born with it or not it, it, it's a simpler it's a more simplistic worldview that you can give up easier you can it's, 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 I don't know. I think people like simple worldviews, even even if they're detrimental to your growth. Speaking of talent, I know that you auditioned for American Idol, but I don't know anything more than that. Can you tell me why you auditioned for American Idol and oh, what yeah. happened? I auditioned, I auditioned twice for American Idol. What was your um, talent? Well, I was a professional opera singer, so that's part of the story. I didn't tell you, when I didn't get into cognitive science, I auditioned for the opera program at Carnegie Mellon. And once I got in for my singing ability, I then transferred um, to psychology once I was there. So I was a singer. I wanted to be, I thought, well, if I could do psychology, I'll be on Broadway um, or um, do opera. And and my my dad, he went with me to the auditions and we waited in line all day long. We waited in line for that moment of two seconds and to get the rejection buzzer. So. Oh, man. How old were you? Okay. I was in Yale grad school. Wow. The first, the first time I auditioned, I feel like... Maybe I was even still at Carnegie Mellon. I can't remember the second time. Yeah, I was at Yale. I wrote an article called How to Win American Idol, which was a featured article at Psychology Today. 
I was like, well, if I didn't win it, I'm going to try to at least do a, a, a deep psychological analysis. Oh, man. Um, I have to read that at some point. I'm curious to know how, how I can win American Idol. Okay, I want to get into Transcend. What drew you to study transcendent experiences and what it means to transcend? I was drawn to study self-actualization. That's what I originally was drawn to in the writings of Abraham Maslow. And then when I, when I dug into his writings, I noticed that he talked a lot about transcendence towards the latter years of his life. And he started, he, he was viewing self-actualization as trans, as a bridge, as merely a bridge to transcendence. Mm-hmm. And I then became enamored by his writings on that topic and realized, well, I need to, I need to tell the world about, about this. And a lot of people think of self-actualization as this purely individualistic pursuit, uh, despite all the costs. And that's not how he was conceptualizing it at all. And yeah, I really wanted to, to, I just went down that rabbit hole and resonated with his own conceptualizations of transcendence, not as being above the rest of humans, but as being deeply connected with humanity at a very, very, very deep level, much more so than, than being above. And I, I, I resonated with that definition of transcendence more than anything I'd seen before, uh, more than a lot of how a lot of people talk about enlightenment, you know, but Maslow was all about the Bodhisattva path to enlightenment. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but it's a particular path where you aren't enlightened until you help others along the help. You don't fulfill your own potential unless you help others fill their potential. And Maslow was very much thinking along those lines. And I liked, I liked his writings a lot about that. So it was a five year rabbit hole <laughs> the project. Do you ever go down rabbit holes? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, Definitely. You know, it's, like, it's like, and then you just, you forget about everything else in life. Mm. I tend to, I, I can do that. I can do that very easily. Just get so focused. And then next thing you know, you have 521 missed voicemails from mom. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had a transcendent experience? Have you? For sure. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I've had transcendent experiences. I've had them for sure. Um, but it depends on what level we're talking about them. So I talk about transcendent, the unitary continuum. I talk about it in my book uh, that ranges. Did you see the unitary continuum? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so it ranges from like gratitude and flow and and love to uh, up to in, to awe, inspiration, and the mystical experience. I don't I don't know if I had a mystical experience. Um, have you had a mystical experience not on LSD? I yeah, I think I have. I, I do think I have. Um I was in South America and I hiked. This was the first time I ever went backpacking in my life. And after hiking for eight hours at an extremely high altitude, like sixteen thousand feet, I put my backpack down and it was getting dark out and there was an unobstructed view of the stars, no light pollution. And I just couldn't really tell where my body began and the dirt 
or my body ended and the dirt began and I was just yeah, lying in the ground and I was like, I, I, I kind of get what people mean when they say we are nature and man and civilization is a false binary. So I would say that was more of a mystical experience, not brought on by any substance besides adrenaline and fatigue. Fascinating. You know, I, I'm, I'm really interested by this idea that people tend to have those most profound moments often follow a moment of, of struggle and overcoming it and settling in to that awareness. I just always find that really interesting. Yeah, I, I do too. And I don't want to be someone who promotes struggle as a means to have a transcendent experience or to become self-actualized, because I think that can also be harmful, this concept that we have to struggle in order to become better people. And I would also agree with you. What about you, though? What, great, what if great, you're trans- great, great, great nuance. Great nuance you just added there. Thank you. Well, I, I've certainly had, again, I don't know if I've had a mystical experience, but I've certainly, I have a lot of all-like experiences. It's AWE. And well, I'm inspired. I'm inspired a lot. I, I, was, I think maybe I was inspired more in my, my, my youth. <laughs> but I yeah, will have a lot of these moments where, I, you know, you see new possibilities for yourself and for others. And you're inspired to realize some future vision of yourself. I view that as a transcendent experience, maybe one that's not often discussed when transcendent experiences are discussed, but I, I think that's an important one. And that, that has happened to me. It happened to me to, to write this book. That was a trigger for why I knew that I had to write this book, uh, but I don't, I'm waiting for the next one. <laughs> Who knows what it is yet? Uh, yeah, I love how you frame that as a transcendent experience, seeing the potential of who you could be when you hadn't seen it before. And you write about how self-actualized people are always working towards something precious to them. And many of them are following a calling vocation. Do you think that everyone has a purpose or purposes? I I don't think of it as like, as you have these purposes, more I, there are plenty of callings from outside that, that one can resonate with that frequency. And there, there's at least, there's at least one calling uh, for every person, <laughs> but I don't think that it's the, the purpose, the calling doesn't, the potentiality doesn't lie purely within you. Mm. It, it is, uh, lies in, in you and out of you. And, and the, the key is finding what life question is, what need out there you can fulfill the, the best because of your own unique constellation of traits and characteristics and motivation. I like that way of thinking of it a lot. How do you believe that people can discover these motivations and get in touch with what is both in and outside of them so that they can work towards something greater than themselves? A lot of the, lot of the getting in touch process is not about adding something. It's usually about what you can take away so that you can see the signal as clearly as possible. Mm. We are constantly distracted and drawn to 
things based on our maybe our evolutionary instincts that cause us to forget who we wanted to be in the first place or, or help or cause us to forget what sides of ourselves we feel most alive when we're enacting them um, because well that's the nature of genes they want to just propagate themselves they don't really care about the whole organism but the whole organism cares about the whole organism <laughs> and can care about others and a lot of that really is a, is, is the process of self-exploration self-understanding and um, meditation and deep awareness of of one's whole self in on, on the route to becoming a whole person i have a whole series of exercises i'm i'm super i asked if we overlapped at ben at, at penn because I'm, I'm super bummed that that you never took my positive psychology class i know right i'm like i wish i would have taken that class yeah I'm what when were you when were you at penn what years? i was at penn from well i was a psych major too for like a good year and a half but i was at penn from 2015 i think to 2019 so you're a recent graduate. Yeah, I am. Oh, rock on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um I did teach in 2015 to 2018. So there, I taught I taught positive psychology there for three years. Are you sure we never talked to each other? You just look so familiar. I don't think so. I don't think we've ever. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked to each other. We ever. overlapped at Penn three years. Huh. Anyway, sorry. Only... What was the question? Yeah. The only classes I took, well, I took five psych classes. None of them are positive psychology. I took like abnormal huh. psychology, the psychology of sleep. I took social psych. I took, yeah, I never took positive psych though. Bummer. <laughs> I know. Well, uh, well, I have all the exercises in the in the appendix two of my book. So both you and, well, you and anyone else that wants to learn all those exercises, most of them that I teach in my class, I put into the book so I could give it away. Nice. Yeah, I, I appreciate some actionable steps. So because this show is what what I am motivated to look at and explore is how people can cultivate meaning in their lives and how they can work towards a purpose, because I agree with you that it becomes difficult, not because we don't know what it is, what we want to do, but we receive so many messages about what we should be doing and who we sh who we should become that it becomes hard to discern what it is we actually want versus what we have been conditioned to want so i think those exercises are i'm sure things that everyone can benefit from yeah i, I appreciate that a lot of it is is actually really uh exploring your and harnessing the power of your dark side Ooh, a lot of it is just learning the process of acceptance and 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 taking your uncomfortable emotions and not putting them under the rug sleeping them under the rug but like getting as close as possible to uh feeling what they feel like and 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 showing it some affection and acceptance and even a little humor and I don't think people have enough humor about their dark side. They're so they take it so seriously. So they don't true. realize they don't realize they don't have to take it so seriously. There's it, it's part of you. It's part of being human. Mm. I mean, people that are it's just part. It's part. It's what we've 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 got built in. It's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's part of our aliveness. So, 
why would you want to become less alive? I mean, people who take lots of medication are too much, you know, to evil, even their mood or whatever, they, they report just not feeling as alive. And I think that's interesting. Yes, I agree with you. And I think about Brene Brown's work on unworthiness uh, and yeah. shame. She's and a I friend think, of mine. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> there are things where I'm comfortable sharing that are, quote, dark, but it's because there I don't have as much shame around them. But the shame that, stories right. that I have, yeah, like sharing those. I'm like, if someone hears this and then I become unworthy of connection, what's going mm-hmm. to happen? And I think Do you mind sharing something with me? Or we can Oh do my it god, back, I would love to. Yeah. Well, as I was saying, and what the forward of this episode will be, I've had so much shame around my college experience and like that was the shame story for me being at Penn and no one knowing that I I got in through a different program where the acceptance rate is much higher where I don't receive the necessary aid I needed to not be in hundreds like over a hundred thousand dollars of debt I had so much shame amazing Amazing. There's so much to unpack there. I, I'm going to have to turn the tables on you someday <laughs> 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 interview you. Yeah, that's been very hard for me to share with other people. Um, why? Been, why? I was afraid that people would say I bought my way in. I had a lot of the same fears as you where people would see that I am inherently stupid, that professors would pity me that my, that other students would pity me and instead it's just something i hid and and yeah that's what i was afraid of but do you realize that you had nothing to be afraid of now you realize that right i realize the same thing as you where you can be at an institution that you were not able to get into through the way that you are quote supposed to and still mm-hmm. excel because you're a curious person and you are working to self-actualize and solve problems beyond the self. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're, I think we can attribute a lot of your success to your intelligence as well. Oh, <laughs> I'm never... You have that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, maybe. I, I should take an IQ test and see what my brain looks like. I don't care Thank about what, what <laughs> IQ, IQ test says. <laughs> I have one more question. Oh, thank you. I have one more question for you to close. The premise of your book, or maybe one of the premises of your book, is that Maslow never actually made a pyramid or this hierarchy of needs. And yeah, and rather becoming human is about integration and working to integrate. Yeah, Yeah, um, I don't know. If you want to speak to that more, if you can you just give us a brief overview of the integrated hierarchy of needs? I have a sailboat metaphor because I think that better than a pyramid, which is how the theory is often represented, even though he never drew a pyramid, uh, life is really more like a sailboat where we don't climb a mountain and, and, and step over the other needs that we have but we integrate all of our needs in the most healthy, harmonious way so that we can be comfortable with ourselves. We can be a a whole unit um, as we move in the vast unknown of the sea. 
and we have the security of the boat and we can also be vulnerable and open that sail um, to allow us to perhaps uh, we may weather a storm or open ourselves up to danger but we don't grow unless we get out of our comfort zone so yeah i have a sail sailboat instead of a kaufman sailboat instead of maslow's pyramid that he never even drew what are you working to integrate into your life right now oh boy well, I don't know if that answer is appropriate for this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a bunch of, a bunch of, let's just say a bunch of things. Okay. Well. Oh, that's not so mysterious, doesn't it? Yes, but that's okay. If you, if you want to keep your darkness within. Hey, I don't call it darkness. Or, okay. If you want to, that's okay. You definitely do not have to fully share. We can just know that you are working to integrate and self-actualize for wholeness yeah yeah like, like everyone else yeah even though they don't know it uh they or they wouldn't even frame it that way um working towards wholeness i there's a there's a, you hear a lot when uh, you listen to meditation apps they say close your eyes and realize that you're whole just as you are now and i'm like no nah, i call bs on that <laughs> I know, <laughs> I <think. right? laughs> i'm like no uh, that, that's that's yeah that sounds nice and it will make all your listeners feel good but i think it, the process of becoming a whole person is a lifelong process and we can we, we need to strive we need to put effort towards it it's not it's not as easy as just closing your eyes and listening to your breath and you're like oh yeah i'm whole I, I i know i'm gonna get some pushback about that probably but you know i, I think we have to it's we we work towards growth our whole lives and you know i'm i'm obviously not perfect because no one is and i'm you know trying to figure out ways i can healthfully integrate when i'm agitated or when i'm in this mood or that mood what, what can i do to to just have radical acceptance of of all of it and the impermanence of it all as well mm, i agree with you maybe you'll get pushed back but i agree with you in terms of these meditation apps and guided meditations or whatever that tell us we're enough and we're whole i think that is a product of individualism and we're not enough on our own and we need other people we're interdependent beings so i yeah. i feel that i agree with you yeah. Well, thank you so much, SBK, for uh, talking with me. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Where can listeners find your book? Where are you on social media? What's What are your handles? So Twitter, SB Kaufman, Instagram, Scott Barry Kaufman. Um, trying to up my Instagram game, so please follow me. <laughs> um, let's see. I... Uh, yeah, uh, and my book can be purchased at transcend-book.com. Uh, we'll take you to the, the, the page of my webpage. Is hyphen, is that the word I'm looking for? It's the dash uh, hyphen. Uh, yes, hyphen. <laughs> Transcend-book.com. And, uh, and it's also on Amazon and wherever books are sold virtually. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Called, and thank you to my friends for being an ivy drip as I experience a shame hangover. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at called underscore podcast, more active on Instagram. If you want to talk about shame or purpose, or if there's someone you want to hear on the show, send an email to thecalledpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time. 
bags in my lonely room Whipping out the mummy trying to cop a groove Back to school with a pair of new shoes Battle walk the swag walk I do With the rhythm of a blind dude Make me dance and sing like iTunes Don't know who I am, let me remind you I am the king champion Original of the squad Won't ever forget my star